0: This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived,
1: built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more
0: information on the new hardware movement and
1: the resources
0: you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com/slash
1: hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Jonathan Backrack, who is an artist, computer scientist, professor at Berkeley, um, co-founder of Other Lab, which is a company here in San Francisco which integrates artistic endeavors with computery ones as well. Um, although your focus now at Berkeley mainly is working on software-defined hardware of all kinds. Um, and we're very excited to have a chat um, about that because that's exactly the kind of thing that we're into. So thank you very much for being with us today, Jonathan. Welcome. <laughs> it's great to be on the
0: show. Now you've done a lot of work on some pretty fundamental aspects of computer architecture. So what's exciting in that world right now?
2: I've been lucky enough to be involved in uh, or watch. I'm not as directly involved in um, um, uh, My colleagues uh, at Berkeley are working on this hardware software interface called RISC-V. And what, what's so great about that, what it's all about is creating uh, an open source interface between hardware and software. And so if you think about, um, you know, what's in your phone and uh, on your laptop, we have, we have these existing interfaces, but they're all proprietary, um, and so what, what they're trying to do at Berkeley is, is, uh, is trying to create this interface so that we can make it open for everybody. Cause it's what uh, Krista Asanovic likes to say is like, it's not important because like most of performance and, you know, all the productivity and all it has do with like, um, it doesn't have to do with that interface, but if you're getting stuff to run, it's a super critical thing. Right. And so it, it's like, uh, it's, it's a really important. And so people have. When you say that interface, you mean the actual hardware of the CPU? So ARM and x86 are the instruction sets that run on um, like, you know, the most devices and, and computers out there. Right. And so um, in order to like write a compiler or to get an operating system run, You have to know what those instructions are, that instruction set, Mm. right? What the format is and all that. And so um, up till now, the only options are these very complex proprietary um, instruction sets. And so what they're doing at Berkeley, you can look at risk5.org, is very clearly specifying that interface and then freeing up people to kind of once and for all, kind of port the compilers and operating systems to it. And then people can start to write the hardware that executes it. So you have the standard interface. And once we all agree, we can all just be really productive.
0: So this is about further abstracting the, the very lowest levels of the, of the computer.
2: It is an abstraction level because it allows you latitude on the hardware side to implement that instruction set in, as best you can the art of actually writing one of these instruction set, uh, ISAs instruction set architecture is, is to actually give enough latitude, have the right level, like you say. Um, and so they've taken a lot of the good ideas and kind of furthered that and uh, come up with this. So it's been really exciting to me to be witnessing that. Um, and, uh, they are doing, they're in there, like going on their fourth, uh, workshop, where people from all over the world get together uh, from, you know, all different areas, both uh, academia and industry, and they uh, get together and, and they have a foundation and they're trying to like work out some of the other parts of the interface and talking about, the innovations that they've come up with, but it's super exciting at this point. So floodgates have kind of burst wide open, you know, (laughs) because it's like super exciting to be liberated in this way. Because otherwise we were kind of beholden to companies like Intel and Arm. So I guess uh, what I've been doing, uh, just kind of getting back to the topic at hand, because I'm I'm really interested in design tool um, revolution and uh, empowering people and uh, fueling this new industrial revolution. Right. Um, and, uh, so one, one of the ones that's sort of behind the scenes of all of our electronics is like fabricating chips. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've spent like the last five years of my life actually last, since, you know, I, I saw, uh, was hanging out with David kraner uh, <laughs> at MIT. Um, I, I've pretty much, uh, been really working hard on this, uh, this idea of, uh, uh, increasing productivity and design for uh fabricating chips. And so, it's been really great because I've been teamed up with this group doing computer architecture and also uh them coming up with this RISC-V interface. But the the challenge was like that it's very slow to design these uh dig, this digital electronic uh design for um these chips. So we're um working really hard on on new ideas for that and i've worked on this thing called chisel that is bringing a lot of the good software ideas to um, harder hardware design
0: so so to to start out um you know how many people are out there fabricating chips like i think i think to a lot of people uh, fabricating chips is something that you know it's Intel and Qualcomm and Broadcom do. Um, but you seem to be suggesting that you're developing a new tool that's kind of, you know, dem- or a new approach that's like democratizing this. Are, are, there, are there other people now who are fabricating chips, you know, in university labs? Or, or is that kind of the vision for, for the future that it might be more widely practiced?
2: I would say there's a bunch of bottlenecks. Um, so answer your question directly. There aren't many people. And and this is the problem, right? And so there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Um, it takes a huge amount of money, millions of dollars. And so there's the cost of just paying people to design it and make something that actually will work. And then there's cost of fabricating. And it is staggeringly expensive right now. And so how there much aren't, does it cost to get a, a prototype? Um, there's then? been estimates like ten. Oh, okay. So this is another thing. So let's just be clear. Like um, separating it out, going into production, um, you're talking like estimates are like beyond 10 million, um, Mm -hmm. in total cost, but to do little runs where you test out an idea, what they've come up with is this idea of a shuttle run where you can do a little, um, design together with a bunch of other people. And those are, um, estimated at more like uh, $40,000. And a lot of the, okay, so a lot of the expense for on the fabricating side is paying for all the equipment mm-hmm. and having this advanced fabrication facility and all that. So, what people have to do, and when Moore's Law was in effect, you have to do a whole new fab with billions of dollars, right? Every, every, every of years. year and a half. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, you have to like somehow pay for those expenses so you charge your customers but what Mm -hmm. if moore's law starts to slow down then then we've already amortized the cost of the fab and we can start to lower the cost so there's a lot of opportunity there
0: an opportunity for new new organizations to enter the enter the market right
2: and so um one that my colleague has, has spun out is is called Sci-5, which is taking the risk 5 ideas and kind of doing an open source spin on that um, where uh, they're looking at new disruptive ways to fabricate chips. So I actually feel like this activity is gonna really take off. So I'm a little ahead of everything. So it sounds a little crazy, but on the other hand, I think more and more people are going to do harder designs and we just have to make it both more approachable to people. We have to educate people to be more uh, capable in, in doing designs um, and Give people, the right tools, give them, give them the right tools, give them the right education. And then we have, to, there's a whole variety I see of what, where this is going. So um, I think first uh, reconfigurable computing, right? So FPGAs, that is going to be much more in the mainstream. Intel bought Altera, you know that is uh, a huge thing. Um, hmm. Altera is one of the biggest FPGA companies. FPGA is field programmable gate So there are things where you can take a design that you would have uh, tape uh, produced a chip for, and uh, run it on something that's a lot less expensive, it's and kind you of can off reprogram it. Right. Mm-hmm. So your your overhead is like ten x or more, uh, but it gives you this ability to um, make hardware that is more, a little bit more like software in that. uh, So, one of the reasons it's so expensive to make chips is because if you make a mistake, it's really expensive, right? Mm -hmm, So, they go to great lengths to ensure that there aren't bugs. And uh, that is actually dominates, that dominates the cost of design. But what if you know, you could reprogram it. You found a bug, you just reprogram. You just you do a firmware update of, all, of everyone out there. Um, but right now, the thing is that there still is a lot more to be gained. So we kind of, it's in, FPGA is kind of an awkward space where they're kind of hard for people to use. But, you know, if you're really getting into it, then you want every last drop of efficiency and power mm-hmm. uh, reduction. And so, but anyway, that's one, one thing. And I think then I think printed electronics, 3d printing of electronics, there's just a whole bunch of things that are going to be part of that kind of new industrial revolution. And we have to know how to take advantage of that. So actually what we have on a phone right now is we have a system on chip and that has, um, all the different, um, it has both the processors, which I talked about was being kind of proprietary, Instruction set, but then it also has a whole bunch of hardware acceleration of the things Other that w- we want to do, right? And so it runs so efficiently, like a thousand times faster than software that people go to these great lengths um, to to put them on there. Now, mm-hmm. the question is like, there's all these trade-off curves, right? In terms of like the economics of going into production, you know, how many customers are you gonna sell it to? Can you amortize the cost of the production? There's trade-offs on whether you care about the performance and the power, um, you know, and that those are questions that you have to uh, decide. But, you know, I think it's an exciting future now that, you know, Moore's law is ending, that there's more reconfigurable and more rapidly prototyped electronics that are coming online. Um, so I think, uh, and even for circuit boards too, you know, like that we're, we're, uh, taking desktop mills like the other mill and being able to like fabricate boards in an hour. But the question is, can we design the board in an hour? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is where,
1: this is where chisel comes
2: in. Well, this is actually, more recent work that I'm doing that, um, I am, I'm, I'm st- it's still, it's still in development, but I think the, the basic ideas play out well. So I think what I'm trying to do at Berkeley in, uh, teaching, um, in Jacob's design school is to do classes that are basically design physical X for programmers, you know, for programmers. So you can come in and I've wrapped kind of a digital kind of wrapping on mechanical design or uh, electronics so that you don't need to know a huge amount. You're kind of shielded mostly. And uh, and, and you then, can operate
0: mostly right. in, the, in the digital side.
2: Right. And the win is huge, right? Um, the win is is that um, we get all the good aspects of software. So the big idea in Chisel, I'll just get back to it and kind of talk about it more broadly is is this idea that we write a generator for the hardware? So it's like it is a piece of software that generates the circuit. So that's the idea. And what's cool about it is that you can put in all the abstractions in software in the activity of writing that generator. The generator itself has all the abstractions. But once it's produced the circuit, those abstractions are gone. Mm-hmm. So there's no cost to the abstractions. But what because it, it compiles. It compiles it away. It's just yeah. used for the compilation, the elaboration. Mm-hmm. You have this uh, a level of abstraction where you can like you you can actually once you produce you produce like basically a data structure that represents your circuit, and then from that you can generate either um, C simulator or the actual circuit in Verilog. We've actually been um, pushing that idea a little bit further, and what we're trying to do is uh, make that that data structure more uh, formal. And, uh, and, and create what would be essentially kind of an open compiler like LLVM for hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got this thing called Fertile, which is flexible inter- inter- intermediate representation for RTL. RTL is, is mm-hmm. this register transfer level that people, digital designers use. So we're trying to formalize that and then create a whole open compiler around that um, and then, so I think a lot of possibilities come in and that kind of explodes the space of, of these these kind of hardware compilers.
0: We talk with a lot of people on this podcast who are excited about being able to do stuff at higher levels in software, you know, using, using scripting languages like JavaScript to do ever more powerful things on embedded systems and so on. But this is like um, enabling people to go lower level, people who have maybe never gone as low as, as this in the stack before.
2: Right. So the c- challenge is like, how do you, create a much higher level design without giving up, you know, this, this efficient mapping. Um, And so what we've been trying to do is this layered approach where we can kind of come in at like a low layer and then just do this, this sort of software veneer on it. So you're still in control of what resources you're using, but you can write a program around it and use all the abstractions. So you can do object oriented programming, functional programming, all that towards this goal or this, task of actually creating the hardware Um, so that way you can make it a much higher level thing and actually to a large extent it almost looks like you're writing a program that's Uh getting compiled down to hardware
0: so it crosses over the critical hardware software boundary
1: so can you tell us about what the workflow of 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 using something like chisel is like like you know if i i want to design a processor which accomplishes a very specific purpose and i don't want to do it Using the standard ways, sitting down to use the hot new shit that you guys are making what is that what does that workflow look like and yeah. how is it different than the old workflow
2: right so the the workflow is mostly to do with the front end design the design and and the testing uh, part so you you basically uh, write a design um, and then you you do your 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 unit test to make sure that it it, it passes your test like you do in agile design you're, you' basically write a little module and you you write tests for it and you just keep doing that and then you go to the next level up and make sure and then you start do system testing and you compose those parts. So you, so a lot like I think what's really nice and it enables this kind of bottom-up uh fun way of doing uh design. So you can you can build you build these blocks from the bottom, you get all the key blocks you want and then you start putting them together. Now for a processor you, you essentially you look at the spec. Here's the instructions I need to implement, and uh, you basically have to go down and figure out you know how to write the hardware that will decode the instructions, execute them, and have all the architectural state you know the registers and whatnot, and uh, make sure it all conforms to the spec. Now, once you have something that you think it fulfills uh, your your spec for that that part, then you can run it through, uh, we have a C back end that you can simulate it. And so you do a lot of simulation and then once that all is working, then you start to look at, well, now I have to look at what the chip's going to look like that I'm going to build. So that's where we stop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to a large extent, we produce Verilog, which is the design language for for these chips, Right for, for RTL. And then, you feed it through these um eDA tools which um for electronic design automation tools like um synopsis and and cadence put out mm. and then they they actually do the actual place and route of the transistor the standard cells onto onto a chip so so that's, that's, that was the part that we took on, which we feel like is a good chunk of things. So uh, speaking of process, uh,
0: we like to ask our, uh, our guests as a part of a segment called Tools to talk about the tools that they like to use. Uh, can be at work or not at work.
2: Okay, well, I just want to talk about like something that I'm pretty obsessed with. It's Emacs. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so a sort of, uh, date myself here. I, I, uh, was around when, uh, Emacs was really written and, uh, I had it before like bitmap displays. And then once they came, I pretty much used it for the whole screen. And, uh, uh, so, you know, Emacs is, uh, a great thing. So I'm, I'm, uh, really excited about Emacs as, as, a. An enabler but I am very aware of its limitations. Now why do you like
1: Emacs so much? Because I feel like a lot of uh, young bucks these days like use Atom and, and Eclipse and everything and they, they hear about the great Emacs versus VI wars, but they only think of them as like text editors. But I mean real real users of these tools, you can do some pretty
2: serious stuff, right? Like why, why, do, you, why do you like Emacs? I guess I'm just uh, sort of like it's an aesthetic. Ideally and sort of what I'm I'm working on right now is writing my own Emacs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm like, I feel like I know the limitations, but I don't like what the offerings are. So I feel like it kind of gets in the way a little bit. But I will say that one of the things that's really exciting is collaborative design, like maybe the most important thing to be working mm-hmm. on. And uh I do feel like uh things like Adam and other things out there are really they're they have the potential for making it easier to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can see that, but I pretty much like everything that is out there, uh, that when it comes out, it comes out on Emacs as well. But you know, I, I think like the problem really is the Emacs hasn't caught, uh, kept up with the world. And so it's pretty dated, but the general architecture is really powerful. So. I I must admit that I haven't done a full audit of like vim with uh yeah. <laughs> you know multiple windows and uh, I lo- I just looked a little bit at atom. Have you used atom? I all? use atom usually. Yeah, what yeah. do you like about
1: it? Uh I like it because it is aesthetically pleasing. I like it cuz the um I like the easy like the integration with homebrew so you can so you can and the repositories for plugins that you can get
2: but I do appreciate the fact that a lot of people are pulling together for Adam and I do appreciate like all the little tools that are out there. Um, you know, so like refactoring and things like that, that like are really nice activities to have these have support for renaming variable names and things like that. So I could see things like that, but I guess I'm just, I'm still like a little worried about the paperclip syndrome where you kind of like, you get it's like the advice is never quite what you want um and so like i'm worried like it's gonna get in the way of like i don't know so like if you're typing like uh, a function and you're if you're you're programming right it's you do a function does it like tells you what the arguments are like and Uh it uh shows, or like it tries to guess what you want does it usually get guessed correctly is it pretty good about that if you set it up
1: right it guesses pretty well right i mean one thing that is hard that i haven't quite figured out yet is how to like make it be aware of all the file dependencies in the project that you're working on. But I feel like that's operator error and not a limitation of the system. Also, when I said homebrew integration earlier, I meant GitHub integration earlier when I said I was talking about Adam. And now it's time for our favorite segment of the show, which is Click Spiral, which is where we discuss things that have been occupying our browser tabs, free time, hobby time, things that may or may not be work-related but are still interesting and enriching. So let's get started. John, what is your click spiral for this week?
0: Well, we uh, we invite listeners to send in click spirals that they want to uh, inflict upon us and the other listeners um, by emailing hardware at O'Reilly.com. And then we'll take a look at what it is and uh, and perhaps talk about it on the program, like this one, which comes from Andrew Setital. This is a simulator that he came across on the internet called the SAM simulator that... Uh, Gives you the experience of launching Cold War era surface to air missiles. This is a crazy Hungarian who has uh, created a piece of software uh, that that lets you sit in front of the control panel of uh, half a dozen or so different Eastern Bloc surface to air missile control systems.
1: Oh, so it actually simulates the control panel of the surface to air missile launching system.
0: Right. So you're like you're like reading the radar <laughs> signatures of a U two flying over. And then uh, you configure the thing to shoot a missile at it. And then you fire and you see if you hit it. And um, so when you go to the page, uh, the SAM simulator page, so it includes uh, accurate representations of some of history's most famous surface-to-air missile kills, including uh, the U-2C spy plane over Sverdlovsk, which I think is uh, Francis Gary Powers' uh, U-2 that was downed over the over the Soviet Union. Um, there's uh, one over Hanoi. One, the, there's something from the uh, from the Sinai campaign, and and uh, something involving a, a stealth bomber over Belgrade. It's it's a, a strange fascination, and there's an interview. We'll post the link to the interview in the show notes that accompany this podcast episode with the creator of this simulator, um, where he sort of confesses that it's an odd fascination, but uh, he's not, you know, actually a, a, a military a veteran or anything like that. He just thinks it's kind of an interesting technology to explore and something which, you know, isn't uh, isn't generally accessible to the public.
1: Yeah, whenever you think about people saying that the, the fingers on the button, you never actually. No one really knows what 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 does the button look like? What kind of a button is it? I don't know. As, as an HCI designer, I I think about stuff like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just it's funny to go retro with that cuz I think like video games are going to be more of the interface for the future war. So, you know, um but yeah, so it's a little bit of a scary foreshadowing of, of the future of everyone being in control of these missiles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe
0: the future war will be people playing video games where they're sitting in front of a Cold War era control right. panel. Right. It's, all very,
1: it's all very Ender's Game.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so David, what's your click spiral this week?
1: Uh, I've been interested in radioisotope thermoelectric generators.
0: What is a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, well, David?
1: John, let me tell you. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a uh, it's basically a, a battery powered by nuclear energy, huh. so it is a enclosed capsule that has some like plutonium or something in it that is decaying, generating heat, and that heat is powering a uh, thermal pile that then generates electricity. They're often used in uh, like satellites, um, like the like the or in space probes, like deep space probes, like the Voyager probe has one in there because it's like will generate electricity for hundred years and is not user serviceable. And really needs to work for a long time. I believe that there's an ice uh, excuse me, there's a, there's a lighthouse in the Aleutian Islands that, that, that uses this to power the, the lights for it. Uh, you know, if you've seen the Martian, you know there was some drama surrounding Matt Damon trying to uh, get power out of a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. But um, what's also interesting that I came across on the Internet is that there have been uh, pacemakers actually, which have RTG batteries in huh. them. Um, that were installed back in the day, you know, back in the the, the golden days of of willy nilly experimentation with with <laughs> with, with medical with, devices, with, with nuclear power, you know, uh, nuclear before. power and medical devices, nuclear power and medical devices. Well, the medical is, devices too <laughs> cheap to meter. Exactly, but like I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, before they had wireless charging and all this stuff and everything, it's actually a problem. You can, you can make a pacemaker. What happens when the battery runs out? So I was doing some reading, and and apparently. Uh, like 139 people got the first versions of the nuclear pacemaker. This is a Reuters article that I'm quoting that from. And uh, it seems like they're mostly on average, like pretty okay. Like I think some had some issues with connectors failing or something like that. But um, they're there early adopters. Yeah, yeah. Early so, yeah. adopters. Exactly. <laughs> who are walking around with the actually like, like nuclear
2: powered hearts. Right. They probably have a, like a higher risk of dying of the heart failure and not the...
1: Yeah exposure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Totally. So I thought that that was, was really interesting because we we often think about nuclear stuff as as power plant meltdowns and everything, but there are ways, I mean, nuclear powered battery, it's a very interesting concept.
0: How scaled up is the production of nuclear batteries? I mean, can you buy them on DigiKey?
1: Uh, no. No, you cannot. Um, and also all these articles I've been reading about these these pacemaker batteries and stuff, it like, at the end of each one, it actually has diagrams of what they look like. And if you see this marking on something, you need to contact these people at this address for instructions on proper shipping and disposal.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jonathan, it is your turn now. Well, what I'm into are a couple of things that intersect in an interesting way. One is I'm really interested in open source and people... Uh, making a living off of open source. Uh, I'm also into programming languages and um, it's been a great passion of mine. So I often spend time on uh, news.y Commodator as my launchpad. Hacker it's news. probably my favorite. Yeah, Hacker News, my favorite launchpad. And my topic that I always go to is about people creating new programming languages themselves because it's like... Just so cool that, um, and so empowering for people to write a language. I mean, it's like, you know, we speak a language it's, it's maybe thought is only like here because we have language, Mm -hmm. you know, everything's about language. And we also have a pretty challenging to learn language that we speak English. So it's a really cool, uh, thing to, for people to go about it and there's all these challenges. And then there's the further complication of trying to do it long enough that it can you know, take off and um, be used and practical and all that. So that's, that's what I think about a lot. That's what I do research in. um, But I'm also really into doing things with impact. It's so great to see people out there. So doing this kind of thing. And um, I often think about like how we can make it easier for people to make a living off of open source projects and whether there's, there's a sort of a, 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 sustainable, Incubator or something like Kickstarter for open source projects that I don't know if you guys have seen something like that, but that's, uh, I think, a big dilemma, you know, especially being an academic and having students. You know, a lot of students want to work on projects after they graduate, and often they have to stop because even if they have a really good idea because, you know, it's hard to uh, make a living going that. Now with the web, we have the reach out there, but we need a ways, infrastructure to make it easier for people to make money, so... So on
0: languages, how, what does it take to write a new programming language? Assuming it's not just a novelty language like the lolcats language, you know, where you initialize a variable by yeah. saying like, um,
1: can has X. Yeah, can has X.
2: It's pretty easy to write a uh, poorly performing uh, language. So if you're very domain specific, if you just have one task in mind, you want to script some, something in particular um, uh, then uh, it's pretty easy, and people do it all the time. So, uh, but then, like, to make something that's general enough and uh, and also fast enough, performant enough, is really hard. And so, we we just did it. I sponsored a class um, at Berkeley where we taught some of the um, state of the art techniques on um, on doing uh, implementing uh, the the infrastructure to make a a language run really fast. And uh, that is super advanced and really hard. So that's the sort of thing, that's the wasteland, right? You get to this point where, you know, it it sort of has enough reach and it's starting to perform better. uh, But then you can't go that extra mile. So you can't get it to be fast enough for people to actually deploy it.
0: Right, to justify Um, the learning curve.
2: And then with anything, uh, there's reliability do we make it easier to create systems that are robust? Um, and, uh, and, and that's really important when you're writing tools because you don't, that's the level above the person writing the app, right? Mm-hmm. So the app person can write, create bugs, but if the tool has bugs, then it's like, it, it infects everybody.
1: I think you were saying before we started recording
2: that the, 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 about the, about the personal manufacturing revolution. I'm really excited about the new industrial revolution. Um, I think it's, um, it has a lot of potential. Um, I would love to see people make things at their house and, and uh, in homes. And But uh, but unfortunately, there's not going to be a revolution unless we have a revolution in design tools. So programming language is kind of a tried-and-true way of, of in the software world, obviously, of writing apps and, and, and making things. We need something that has at least the same kind of properties and success uh, for physical design. And so that's, that's pretty much the focus of what I – look at and research, Mm uh, at Berkeley. So
1: cool. Well, uh, that was great. If, if, if any of our, um, esteemed listeners have click spirals that they would like to send to us, um, again, that email address is hardware at com. And we would be glad to inflict your click spiral upon all of our other listeners. Yes. Well, um, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us today. If people want to
2: find you and your research in the internet, where do they look? Jbot.org. Yeah, and I'll I just drop a couple other links. People want to know more about Risk Five. That's Risk Five.org. Chisel. That's Uh There's a workshop coming up in, in uh, July 11th to 12th at MIT on Risk Five. I'm going to do a boot camp on Chisel there, July 11th and 12th. Thanks for having me. Cool, it's yeah, great talking to you guys.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you
0: enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review.
1: Until next time, I'm David Cranin. And I'm John Bruner.